Solvox Radio presents Evolve with your host, Robin White Turtle Disney. Hi, you're listening to Evolve. This is Robin White Turtle Disney. And uh, my guest today is Elizabeth McKenzie, who's an author of several books. Uh, one, the most recent, is called The Portable Veblen. And uh, it's been acclaimed in The New Yorker, The Atlantic Monthly. Best uh, American Non-Required Reading is uh, the P- Pushcar Prize Anthology. It's been on NPR f- uh, for selected shorts. And she has other collections. Uh, Stop That Girl was shortlisted for a story prize. Her novel, McGregor Tells the World, was a Chicago Tribune, San Francisco Chronicle, and Library Journal Best Book of the Year. She's also senior editor of the Chicago Quarterly Review and the managing editor of Catamount. Catamaran Literary Reader. So, welcome, Elizabeth. Hi, Robin. Thank you for having me. Yeah. Delighted to have you. This is uh, a great opportunity to share your wonderful book. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) Yeah, I really loved it. Um, And it has so many variable elements in it, but um, how I want to just jump right into the book because it feels like it's it's up right now for you. Yeah, it's been on my mind lately. <laughs> yeah. And um, how did you combine uh, such des- disparate or separate characters, this individual characters and squirrels and research and hospitals and and the main character, Veblen? Um, you have so many different uh, facets that came together in this book. How, can you talk a little bit about, about its evolution? Sure. Um, you know, my writing group early on, I have a wonderful writing group here in Santa Cruz, and I kept bringing in these different parts, and they, they were surprised they were part of the same novel, and they kept asking me, you know, how does this relate to that other thing you showed us? And, <laughs> you know, at one point someone said, you know, you have a lot of balls in the air. I just... I'm just waiting to find out how it all connects, and mm-hmm. actually, so was I, because <laughs> I, I had I, I did have a lot of strands. I mean, there's a, um, the woman, um, the main character Veblen is, uh, very interested in the philosophy and writings of Thorsten Veblen, and she has a lot going on with her family. Um, her father's a veteran with post-traumatic stress disorder, and her mother, you know, is has her own problems and Dublin's very much caught up as a, she's a 30 year old woman, but still very, you know, connected to her family and at their beck and call basically. And, uh, the man she's planning to marry is a doctor who's doing research at Stanford on traumatic brain injury. And he's experimenting, experimenting on veterans. And he's just sold uh, the rights to his device to a pharmaceutical company. And there's a lot of stuff in the book about, FDA regulations and the workings of a clinical trials and, you know, veterans and so forth. And, um, yeah, I, I wondered for a long time if I would be able to pull it all together. But recently I was just talking, um, about this, uh, somewhere and this image just popped into my mind that would seem like the perfect metaphor for kind of what happened because, I mean, for a long while, I kept thinking, like, how do these things relate? And I'd say, just, you know, have faith that they will because they are connected in you, so they must be connected somehow. Mm-hmm. But um, I used to be really interested in papermaking, and mm. I love, you know, the scientific explanation for papermaking, I mean, is pretty fascinating, but it's so simple to the eye. Like, you just 
put all this pulp in water, you pour it on a screen, you shake it around a little bit, and the fibers microscopically start like grabbing each other and linking. Mm-hmm. And you you know you poured all this unrelated pulp in, and you know a minute later you can take out a cohesive piece of paper. And so I think it was kind of like that. Like I threw all this stuff in the blender, and then <laughs> gradually little fibers just started to connect. Or, you mm-hmm. know. Mm-hmm. And um, but it takes patience, a sort of like an act of faith to. Mm-hmm. For me, it did because, mm-hmm. um, you know, there was no like I couldn't I didn't plan the novel and I didn't know how they would relate when I started. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, and that's that's always a uh, kind of what most of us as writers do when we face the blank page or a, a painter faces the canvas. Um, you know you you're in the blank place where you're not sure uh, what's going to come out but then something happens and you start to put things together spontaneously and uh, I, I love the paper making metaphor because uh, I love paper making too and it, it, it does this magical thing and yeah. then it's like a different substance yeah. it starts with this weird pulp <laughs> yeah. and then it turns into this sheet of paper that you can use I know. And it's practical and it's fascinating. And, and completely strong. And completely yeah. strong yeah. and can be torn up at the same time. And yeah. it does this whole transformation in the yeah. bat that's exactly. just amazing or in your on your screen. So I think that's a great, uh, a great metaphor for looking at it. Um, you have an article on your website, and uh, I wanted to make sure people heard your website so they could look at it. Oh, sure. <laughs> so it's the... Is it the portable veblen dot com dot com? So, yeah, yeah, it is. Um, and the article you're talking about is the surrealism one. Yeah, yeah. it's a, it's a called surrealism and decomposition, and you talk about how you wrote the novel, and or how how you wrote, wrote this particular novel. It's on uh, LitHub, in, in case anybody's interested uh, in going to LitHub. Um, but you talk a lot about surrealism and how that influenced your writing and. I thought, wow, of course you're interested in surrealism (laughs) because you've got all these almost surreal kind of worlds colliding in this novel. Yeah. And I I found it really fascinating, especially when you walk in, imagine walking into a medical research place. It is a complete world unto itself. Yes. And then Veblen has her own world and her mother has her own world. Yeah. So, will you talk a little bit about surrealism and its influence on you? Because I'm fascinated by that. Oh, sure. Um, yeah. It. I mean, it started years ago when I was in college. I was really interested in the surrealist poets and Andre Breton's manifestos of surrealism and so forth. And you know, there was this whole idea that uh, even that, you know, people were taking drugs and stuff like that at that time just to get different experiences that they could write about because they were tired of sort of the oxygen-based reality that, you know, we're used to. And, you know, William James wrote a lot about that. He experimented with nitrous oxide and so forth. And, and, you know, the surrealists had their different methods for experiencing reality differently. Well, nitrous oxide, I'd never heard of that before, but I thought that was, I mean, of course, I'm from the 60s and thinking of acid and other psychedelics, you know, but uh, that was really a surprise to me. 
Yeah. Yeah, I didn't know about that. Yeah, James did a lot of experiments on that and wrote about, you know, what he perceived when doing that. Mm-hmm. Um, but anyway, so I... Gradually, though, I started becoming... Uh, you know, I was writing poetry in college, but it became sort of more interested in writing prose and um, found novels that were as exciting to me as the surrealist poets and other mm-hmm. poets. But um, at the same time, we're sort of held together by sort of classic story structure. Mm-hmm. And um, But one thing that I did, and it refers back to what we were just talking about, about the different strands of this novel, and I think that's how the surrealists helped me with this novel, is that, um, you know, they... They invite you. They, uh, I think it was Rambeau who said that he wanted to partake of the system, systematic disordering of the senses, mm. and they invite you to uh, allow your thoughts to run together irrationally and to just ignore logic, even though you need a certain amount of logic to examine, you know, discordant and uh, thoughts after you've written them down. You need mm. to, you know, for structure and so forth, but waiting to see what the connections are between things that don't seem logically to have a connection. Mm -hmm. And you sort of let those things sit for a while together and ferment or decompose. And then you start getting that synthesis that, Mm -hmm. you know, the paper making thing kind of refers to or Mm -hmm. what I talked about in the essay. So, but part of it is that too, is having like, uh, the not being afraid to let time pass and let that happen because you know, when you start working on something and it doesn't seem to be coming together, it can be extremely distressing mm-hmm. and it can make you think the whole project is worthless or doomed. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. if you just make up your mind that you you are going to see the connections eventually and it's just a matter of coming back to it many, many times, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. you know, I think for me that was key in this book. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and setting it down, setting it aside. Yeah. And- actually having time and space to then um, uh, come back to it with fresh eyes. I mean, we always do that with poems, but I think with a novel it's even more important. You have to let some time lapse so you can actually see it because you get so involved in the story or in yeah. the segment that you're involved in, and then yeah. you don't see how it works or balance. You can't see how it works or balances with the rest of the, no. the what you're writing. You no. Know? I mean, in a totally different form, I see this when... Lately, to relax, I do Sudoku puzzles, uh-huh. and I get to the point where I can't do any more, and then I pick it up the next day, and I just immediately see something. Uh-huh. That, you know, and it's just such a clear demonstration of how the mind works and doesn't work yeah. at different times. But yeah, 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 yeah. It's such kind of fascinating. Yeah. Well, in that article, I don't want to dwell on it too long, but uh, but it did really give me a lot of information about how you think about things. And you mentioned something in there called restraint-based generative devices yes. that I thought was like, what is that? I mean, I, I as a poet, of course, we work with restraint and so on. Uh, I do in my work. But could you just talk about that? Because I'm sure there are a lot of people that don't know what that is. Sure. Um, so the Surrealists had these games, and they called them restraint-based generative devices. And they were, you know, ways to um, stimulate creativity but within very tight boundaries or tight restraints Mm -hmm. Um, and for example when I teach um, workshops I have people do these as exercise 
you know, you, you might remember. Yes, <laughs> yeah. I catamaran last summer. Yeah. That was so fun. Yeah. The, um, the uh, exercise where we take the first letter of your name and you write something, that's an example of a restraint-based generative device. Uh-huh. And, and I find that every time I do that exercise with a class, people are amazed at what they get in a short time. Mm-hmm. Like stuff they were, they were never planning to write or stuff they've been wanting to write, but it had never come out so efficiently. Um, mm-hmm. It's just like you trick yourself. By doing that, um, mm-hmm. you have a time limit, you have, that's another restraint, and you have a certain amount of letters, and um, you're, you're kind of, it's like someone's holding your hand, mm-hmm. um, and by being, by being bound by that, and also by being handheld like that, you, somehow you're, you allow yourself to very creative mm-hmm. yeah mm-hmm. well I think it's easy to um, draw on the same language when you're writing you know I know I I need to, to read somebody that uh, somebody that I haven't read before just to kind of jar my linguistic lexicon exactly so that I have some new words to draw on because yeah. I just get uh, tired of the ones I use over and over again exactly and you know you could say that you know, we write the same story or the same poem over and over again, but you know, I just need new language. And so that sounds like a way to actually motivate it out of yourself rather than exactly not not in either or you find it, you find these like hidden sort of abandoned resources within yourself with that exercise or those kinds of exercises. And also you pull yourself out of your syntactical ruts. Like, you know, I, I don't know if you remember, when we were doing those, but we also, like, people would start sentences in strange ways that uh-huh. they would, because they had to use a certain letter, uh-huh. and um, it doesn't really, to them, sound like their own writing. It's almost like someone else has taken over, uh-huh. and uh-huh. Um, people seem to really like that. I love doing it, and I, whenever I'm stuck in a passage, like I told, you know, say in classes, I just look at a headline in a paper or something, and uh-huh. I, I draw the first letters out of every word in the headline, and I you know, suddenly I'm out of my rut. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. That works really well. Uh, you had mentioned that last summer I had had the privilege of studying with you last summer, Elizabeth, and uh, it was so much fun. And uh, out of that workshop, I don't think I've told you this, but out of that workshop, I was in uh, Monterey just looking at a newspaper and there was an article that really jarred me. And I just started writing about it because, and I never worked from the paper ever. But I started writing about it, and pretty soon I had this poem that I thought, like, who wrote that? Wow, that's wonderful. <laughs> yeah, totally different kind of yeah. writing. So oh. it, it was really interesting to me uh, to use the device yeah. and use some of that to yeah. see what happens. I mean, a sonnet is an example of a restraint-based generative device, really. I mean, because uh-huh. it's, you know, there are all these things that you have to do to mm-hmm. make it a sonnet. Mm-hmm. and some people find those, you know, a limerick, for example. Right, yeah. yeah. Or any other kind of form, yeah, really. Yeah, any form. form does yeah. that yeah. for us. Yeah, absolutely. Wow. So you've gotten some great reviews. <laughs> Fresh Air, New York Times. How does it feel to have this amount of success over your last novel? And uh, how's it been for you? It's been really nice and surprising you can always you know imagine it could have gone completely differently somehow like it Uh but it really feels great I mean one thing I've noticed with this book is more people than with my previous books have 
seem to have read it. And uh-huh. so that feels really good. Uh-huh. Yeah. Great. Great. That's really, you're building your audience here. So <laughs> that's great. Well, we're going to take a little break and come back. And when we come back, I'd love to have you read some uh, from the Portable Veblen. I'm with Elizabeth McKenzie. She's the author of The Portable Veblen and a number of other books. And we'll be right back. Evolve, nurturing the new in consciousness, the arts, and culture with your host, Robin White Turtle Lisney. Evolve brings you people and ideas on the cutting edge of change, opening the shells of the past to move our culture into the now. We are all in great need of sustainable ideas for change. Evolve brings you the wise, the foolish, and the heart-based to help us meet the challenges of our times. Join us the third Thursday of the month at 2 p.m. Pacific Time for Evolve. You can find out more about Elizabeth McKenzie and the Portable Veblen at theportableveblen.com. And now we're going to hear some music from uh, selections from the Portable Veblen. Uh, This one is Jefferson Airplane, We Can Be Together. Robin, my turtle listening, and the show is Evolve, and I'm with Elizabeth McKenzie, who is the author of The Portable Veblen, and it's been published by Penguin Press and Fourth Estate in England. Uh, her work has appeared in The New Yorker, The Atlantic Monthly, Best American Non-Required Reading, and uh, the Pushcart Prize Anthology. Uh, she's been recorded on NPR's Selected Shorts. And uh, she has other collections. Stop That Girl was shortlisted for the Story Prize. Her novel, McGregor Tells the World, was a Chicago Tribune. 
San Francisco Chronicle and Library Journal Best Book of the Year. And she's senior editor of the Chicago Quarterly Review and managing editor of Catamaran Literary Review. So welcome back. Thank you, Robin. <laughs> so uh, I wanted you to read some more um, or something from this book because it's just so inter entertaining. And uh, I picked a little section, but you want to set it up for us? Sure. Um, I'm going to read probably not the whole scene, but part of a scene um, that is about Veblen's first visit home with Paul, the man she's become engaged to, to meet her mother and stepfather. Okay. And they live in Palo Alto, but uh, her mother lives up um, on a on a sort of strange little lot in Cobb, which mm. is in Lake County, oh. north of Napa. Okay. So I will just start from when they arrive at the house. Mm -hmm. No time to think about this now, for they had reached the long driveway of Evelyn's childhood home, the handle of the hammer flanked by elephant-sized hummocks of blackberry vines, where Veblen used to pick berries by the gallon to make pies and cobblers and jam. She'd sell them at a table by the road and help her mother make ends meet. In the fall, she put on leather gloves to her elbows to hack the vines back off the driveway, uncovering snakes and lizards and bulls. In the spring, the vines would start to come back, the green canes growing noticeably by the day, rising straight like spindles before gravity caused them to arc. They grew on the surface the way roots grow underground, in all directions, overlapping, intertwined. The blackberries defined her life in those days, their encroaching threat, their abundant yield. All her old chores came to mind as they rolled up the drive to the familiar crunching of the tires on gravel. I never would have imagined you growing up somewhere like this, Paul announced. Really? Really? No time to think about this either, for Bevelyn saw her mother advancing out of the house in her best pantsuit, an aqua-colored tied silk number beneath which new, as in 25 years old but saved in the original box for special occasions, Dr. Scholl's white sandals flashed. She wore them with wool socks. Linus, too, came, at, came out coiffed and ironed in a blue Oxford shirt. They appeared normal, attractive, almost vigorous. <laughs> Yet how stiff and formal Bevelyn's mother's posture was, and how tall she stood, she had nearly six inches on her daughter. Maybe everything would be fine? You must be Dr. Paul Freeland, her mother said in a formal style of elocution heard mostly on stage. Melanie Duffy. Linus Duffy, said Linus, joining in the hand-grasping ritual. We have prepared a nice light lunch to eat outside. Paul, if you would be so kind as to help Linus move the table into the sunshine, we'll sit right away. The men took off behind the house as the women went inside. Veblen smiled. Mom, you look pretty. I am absolutely miserable, her mother said with the men out of earshot. My shoulders are buckling under the straps of this bra. My neck is already ruined. I never wear a bra anymore. I despise my breasts. They're boulders. The nerve of God to do this to women. I'm going to be flat on my back with ice as soon as you leave. You don't have to wear a bra for our benefit. Take it off. Be yourself. No man wants to see a woman with her breasts hanging down to her navel. Take the straps off your shoulder then. I'll try that. I love your suit. Paul's very good looking, her mother said, but I haven't sensed the chemistry yet. We've been here for five minutes. I hope he's not in love with himself, Melanie said. Oh, good Lord. 
She was looking at the ring. They both started to laugh. Don't hold it against me, Veblen said. What was he thinking? Melanie said. It's not you at all. Yeah, I'm trying to get used to it. It's the ring of a kept woman. Come in the kitchen. I need your help. The oatmeal colored tiles, the chicken-headed canisters, the wall-mounted hand crank, can opener over the sink, gears and magnet always mysteriously greasy, all in place as they had been for years, and Veblen was proud of her mother's artwork on the walls around the table, the abstract in oil and pastels of landforms and waterways and rocks, sure-handed and dreamy. She sniffed the scent of linseed oil and from the cupboards a trace of molasses. Her mother removed a casserole from the oven, her hot mitts clenched around it. This is a delicious recipe I discovered recently using artichoke hearts and bread crusts and just a little Asiago cheese and butter, her mother said. Very special. Nice. Veblen cracked open a head of red leaf lettuce. Her favorite part was the center of baby leaves, and she removed it quickly before her mother could see and ate it. Before I forget, I have a strange lump on the back of my neck. Would you look at it, please? Linus does not have an eye for this sort of thing. How about later when we're out of the kitchen? Now, her mother said. <laughs> Veblen placed the lettuce on the counter and parted her mother's hair with her wet hands. She saw a dime-sized swelling. Yeah, you have a little bump here. Does it itch? No. Is it red? Mm, pinkish. Is it indurated? What's that? Is it hard with clearly defined margins, asked her mother. Veblen squinted at the lump. You tell me. Is the texture peau d'orange? What's that? Veblen asked, exasperated. The texture of orange peel. Veblen squinted again. I'd say it's more like the skin of an apple or maybe a pear. Maybe Paul could look at it, she said, sighing. As long as he doesn't talk down to me, that's all I ask, her mother said. Veblen finished making the salad and brought it out like a victim. Linus had furnished Paul with a beer. Local brew one of those designer jobs, said Linus. I taste some lemon, Paul said, nodding. We make our own blackberry wine on good years. How is it? Sweet, nice for a dessert wine. We end up with 30 bottles or so, give them to friends. I'll send one home with you. Great, Paul said. Love dessert wine, especially with some nice gruyere. I like it with pie. Luncheon is served, called Melanie, bringing out the casserole, placing it on a woven Samoan mat on the table. Paul, I want you here, Veblen at the head. Linus, would you open that special bottle of champagne? Right, said Linus, returning to the kitchen. No, out here, Bel Melanie yelled. Watching the cork fly is festive. Linus shuffled back with the bottle, twisting the wires around the cork. Don't aim it at us, Melanie cried. <laughs> I'm not ready yet. You're aiming it at us. Linus turned toward the house. Not at the wall. We want to watch the cork fly. Turn around. Linus turned and began to wiggle the cork. Wait, you need a cloth. Evelyn handed him a napkin to put under the neck of the bottle. Paul tapped his fork on the table. The cork popped and shot all of about three feet. Bravo, Melanie cried. Now let's make a toast to your visit. May there be many more. <laughs> Should I keep going? Yeah, I keep going. <laughs> Glasses clinked and Paul and Evelyn smiled at each other across the table. If Paul were gracious about this day, she'd love him forever. Paul, we're certainly impressed by your research project, Melanie said. I imagine you're already heavily involved, preparing to dig in. Absolutely, Paul said. I'm getting a lot of support from Huttmacher, basically anything I want. We're going to get off to a good start. There's got to be a bucket load of red tape for those babies, said Linus. More than I realized, Paul said. 
Well, several of my medications are made by Huttmacher, Melanie added. Hurrah! Paul said gamely, raising his glass. And Veblen tells us you've been looking at houses? Oh, that's kind of a hobby, looking. I was raised on a commune, by the way. Are you planning to have a commune? No, the opposite. I want to live behind a gate that no one can get through. Oh, boy, you got to escape the way you were raised, Linus said. Boy, do I know it. <laughs> I just want you to know that Veblen's going to be living in comfortable surroundings, Paul said. Melanie said, Well, Veblen, you'll really have surpassed me. I don't know if Veblen has mentioned it, but I'm very interested in medical matters, having a complicated history myself. You can never be too prepared when dealing with the health care system. Would you not agree? That's right. Patients really need to advocate for themselves these days, Paul said. That's a refreshing attitude. I know you'll find it difficult to believe, but most doctors do feel that way. Veblen's mother dished out steaming mounds of her creation. I've received atrociously condescending treatment over my recent migraine business, she said. It's a wonder cads like these stay in practice. Well, what seems to be the nature of the condition, Paul asked, and Veblen's dread distributed itself through her limbs. <laughs> well, starting four years ago, just after my yearly flu shot, I experienced an array of symptoms ascribed to migraine equivalents or transient ischemia. Obviously, as you know, many known foods and chemicals precipitate the condition. Oh, absolutely, Paul said. Sodium benzoate, cyclamates, chocolate, corn, peas, pork, lamb, citrus, onion, wheat, pears, the list goes on. Symptoms of mine have included imagery, hypothermia, aphasia, a feeling of rotating. Further, I've had facial paralysis, paralysis of the upper limbs, and narcolepsy. <laughs> I don't believe this fits in the typical migraine profile. Well, no, I wouldn't call it typical, Paul said hesitantly. Now, I have learned in time that a middle-aged woman with unusual symptoms can easily be labeled a crackpot, a psychosomatic case, a malingerer. Further, my general physician recently told me I'm too observant. How can I agree with that? If not me, who then? Veblen was breathing rapidly. Paul looked at Veblen and said, Yes, patients need to be proactive. I can't tell you how pleased I am to hear a doctor say that. Now, the cause could be non-organic, Paul began. Veblen winced. Non-organic? Psychosomatic? Is that what you're saying? No, no, not in that sense. What do you mean? If a migraine falls outside their specialty, many physicians don't realize that it is no longer considered psychosomatic. Veblen said woodenly, Mom, let's eat. <laughs> Thank you, going. No, that's a, I think. We'll stop there for yeah. <laughs> I just think that's so funny because it's so true. I mean, like any physician, if you've had any physicians around you, you know that they always get asked questions like that. Yeah. So uh, the, I loved how you wove that in. And but, uh, did she already hand her the, the whole, uh, her whole chart? That's coming up. Oh, that's yeah. coming up. Yeah. So, yeah. So the inch thick chart, she <laughs> got all these psychosomatic illnesses. Yeah, this is a very about. core scene in the book. I mean, it mm -hmm. was published as a story about three years before the book came out. And, uh -huh. You know, yeah, it was kind of pivotal. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. very pivotal. Yeah. yeah, yeah, it's great. Well, and Paul plays it very well, you know, as as he did as a physician. But but then you can see the tension building and Veblen getting more and more stressful. Right. And I love how the the uh, the her tension stress just went through her whole body. <laughs> you know, you yes. can just see it. Oh yeah, it's, oh, that's wonderful. 
So, Veblen, I want to talk a little bit about her character and how she kind of developed. Um, she's a namesake of Thorsten Veblen, and uh, he was the, he's a Norwegian-American, and um, uh, in one thing that I looked up about him, he's the one who came up with the idea of conspicuous consumption. Uh, how does that weave into the novel? Because I think... Uh, he, he's like a hero to the parents yeah. <laughs> and also to Devlin because she's true. read everything about him. That's true. Yeah, um, it was part of the novel even before I realized that her name would be Devlin. I mean, I kind of had a placeholder name for her. And she kept, uh, that was just a big part of who she was. And then it just suddenly seemed right that her mother, that would have been something she and her mother did share. Because, um, mm -hmm. I mean, she just grew up around um, sort of a do-it-yourself attitude, spare conditions, very pragmatic um, house. And mm -hmm. um, But yeah, she was named after Veblen, who, as you say, was a Norwegian-American, born in 1857. His parents came over with a sort of tide of Norwegian immigrants um, in 1847 to first to Wisconsin, where he Veblen was born, and then when he was young, the family of about eight or nine children moved to Minnesota, mm -hmm. and they had a farm. Um, mm -hmm. The father, the father Thomas Veblen, built the house by himself. He was um, some the person Veblen admired most in the world. His mother was also someone who inspired him. She was a teacher, and um, both very smart people. And um, he really had. The, the one item that he kept of his father's was a, a knife, a very practical knife that his father had made. And he loved it and took it with him everywhere because it was beautifully made, very simple, and very practical. Mm -hmm. um, and so, yeah, he railed against his book that came out in 1899, The Theory of the Leisure Class, kind of exposed this thing that was going on in the gay 90s, this... Um, uh, expenditures for things that were more for show than for anything practical uh -huh. and um, he kind of as much as he admired some of the aspects of Marxism he felt what he saw in people he felt Marxism didn't really take into account human nature because what he saw in human nature was uh, a striving and a desire for the trappings uh, that wealth brings uh -huh. and that the working classes would always want to be sort of striving upward rather than just banding together and staying where they were. Mm -hmm. And um, so, yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's a really fundamental piece of the novel because it's so much part of Veblen, the character of Veblen's psyche, mm -hmm. but she's also very fascinated by Veblen's um, biography and you know, the fact that he himself, he actually died in Menlo Park, California. Oh, he did? And oh. had a very big attachment to the area. He had oh. he taught at Stanford in oh. the 1906 to 1909, um, got kind of kicked out because he was always being misunderstood everywhere. Mm -hmm. um, and he wasn't the type to really, he was very gallant towards his first wife who was spreading rumors about him. Um, and he also wasn't the type to kiss up to anybody, so uh -huh. <laughs> he would just go from post to post. But um, so he kept this property on this ridge right up on the coastal mountains, overlooking the ocean on one side and the Sil what's Silicon Valley now on the other. And uh -huh. um, strange little parcel of land where he built this little cabin and um, returned to it over the years and 
you know, ended up living in Menlo Park till he died. Oh, so, interesting. Yeah. Now, how did you run across his character? Because he was an economist, wasn't he? Yeah. He's... So how did you run across that? Because, I mean, it's kind of, I mean, I don't know from economists. I know authors. I know yeah. novelists. You know, it's like it's out of my world. So how did you run across well, him? There was a book that I was really fascinated with in college. It was, I didn't read it for a class, but um, a friend of mine gave it to me. It was called USA by John Doe's Passes. And at, it was considered a very um, experimental novel in a way because it had all these different, um, you know, historical things kind of woven in and little um, portraits of historical figures were featured in the book like Eugene Debs and one was Thurston Veblen and the way that Dos Passos described Veblen when I read the book fascinated me. It sounded like he was this very eccentric person who'd um, maybe not been broken by the system. I mean, I don't really think he really was. Now that I've read much about his life, I think he did lead a pretty joyous life, but mm -hmm. there was this sense that he had been broken by the system, but he was, because uh, he was just, you know, they called him a citizen of the U.S. by birth, but a citizen of nowhere by nature. Mm. And um, he he's a very interesting person, and when you start reading his books, I mean, they're not easygoing um, reading, but mm -hmm. they're very witty and full of really brilliant observations, obviously. I mean, he's still taught now. He's still, mm, they still have nice. conferences about Veblen now. And, really? Oh, I had no and, idea. Yeah. So. Oh, huh. Interesting. I yeah. did not know anything about him, and I was doing some research, you know, before this interview, and I thought, really? That's so fascinating. Because yeah. <laughs> it's just out of my world. But yeah. that's fascinating. I recently actually, one of the most wonderful things that happened to me as a result of this book being published was that the granddaughter of Evelyn contacted me. Oh. And we've met now a couple times. Oh. And she's a really interesting woman. And mm -hmm. it just was, it felt, it was very moving to me uh, to meet her because mm -hmm. I'd read her mother was Veblen's adopted daughter. He had two stepdaughters he was very close to, particularly one of them. And they, uh, she took care of him when he was old, after his wife had died, mm. and was also a wonderful stepfather, which I find very meaningful. Mm. And um, so she, she, I read her diaries about her childhood spent with him and her young adulthood. And then meeting her daughter, who you know, is aware of that legacy. It was, uh, it was really cool. She lives up in San Francisco. Oh, she so, does. Yeah. So fascinating. Yeah. yeah, those little things um, that are kind of benefits from publishing yeah. are wonderful when they happen. I, I know, yeah. yeah. It makes it all seem like it was, you know, fate that you did this. Or yeah. Something. She told me one thing about the property on the ridge that mm -hmm. had I known it when I wrote the book, I would love to have worked it in. Uh -huh. uh, it was that, you know, there are these very rare albino redwoods that grow in these mountains. And, oh, really? Yeah. They're very rare. And, I mean, I know of a few of them around here, but apparently there were some growing right under the cottage. It was suspended between two redwood stumps. Oh. And she said when she was a child, she'd go up there and she'd find these albino saplings kind of coming up. Oh. And they have a whole different texture. They're kind of like soft. They're not, oh. you know. Anyway, so that I would love to have put that in the book. <laughs> <laughs> well, that'll have to be saved for your next yeah. novel. <laughs> yeah. Oh, how fascinating. Well, I'm really delighted to hear more about him because I... 
uh, really, he was such an enigma. You know, why was she named Veblen? You know, like I couldn't. And then when I looked him up, it was so fascinating. And then, of course, a conspicuous consumption was totally about the way the lifestyle is that yeah. she grew up in. Yeah. So I thought that was fascinating. Well, we're going to take another little break, and we'll be right back. This is Robin White Turtle Lisney, and I'm with Elizabeth McKenzie, who wrote The Portable Veblen. You can find out more on her website, uh, www.theportableveblen.com. In the book, there are uh, several different uh, musical selections that are part of the book, and so now we're going to listen to The Fifth Dimension, Save the Country. Robin White Turtle Lisney, and I'm your host on Evolve. I wanted to share with you a few of the things that I'm doing beside the radio show. Uh, you can always go to my website, www.thecenterforthesoul.com, and that is uh, www.thecenterforthesoul.com, and you can learn about all the things that I offer, including readings, healing work, uh, I'm a medium, a psychic. Uh, I'm also an artist and an author. You can check out my books, 
the most recent ones are called Poems for the Lost Deer, and the other is called Heart Path Handbook and Energy Medicine Guide. Uh, both these books have been published this year in 2014. So I just wanted to share that with you, and now we'll go back to the show. Hi, we're back. This is Robin My Turtle Listening. The show is Evolve, and we're with Elizabeth McKenzie, who's author of several books, including The Portable Veblen, which is her most recent one. And uh, she's gotten many awards and all kinds of uh, great publicity on this book, so I wanted to talk to her about this novel because it's so fascinating. And one of the things that's fascinating to me is how you uh, talk a lot about medical research and how um, that is set up and how these... Um, systems or tests or experiments happen in the medical world. Can you talk a little bit about how you wanted to include that in this particular novel? Sure, yeah. It, I probably come by it um, from two directions. Um, one was just sort of um, a long-standing interest in medical stuff because it was a topic, a big topic of conversation in my family. My grandmother was a doctor and mm. she was a pediatrician and um, my mother also had that interest, although she didn't officially have a position in the medical world. Um, mm -hmm. I also, you know, worked as Veblen did as a temp in the Stanford Hospital oh. for a couple of years and um, um, I just, um, so I just have that that interest naturally, but I also had gone through um, the process of having someone I'm very close to um, go through a clinical trial, and um, when it was all over with, uh, it was it was my father and my sister and I were kind of left wondering, well, wait a minute, why why did we do that? It didn't really work out that well for our father because. It, as it turned out, the more we looked into it, when it was already too late, um, he wasn't really suitable for the trial. He was he volunteered for the trial, but I guess my sister and I mistakenly thought that maybe there was some hope that this trial was a way for him to possibly, you know, have some, you know, good news mm -hmm. <laughs> with his illness. But mm -hmm. um, it, it, he was he was a number. Um, and, mm -hmm. you know, I, I, be, I was actually really upset about it for quite a while. I mean, kind of that went into my, it was one of the things I started with. Um, I was working on the book and kind of feeling, uh, I don't know, just someone told me once that if you're looking for a way to start a novel, think about something you're upset about. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and it was just, you know, I guess I felt, my sister and I both felt very grief-stricken that we hadn't really understood that what we were doing with that. Um, although, uh, you know, our father wanted to take part in the trial anyway. But anyway, it just, um, that got me interested in reading about other people's stories mm -hmm. about trials. And mm -hmm. I think there are a lot of great stories about trials and trials are necessary. But I also found you know, indications that other people have gone through similar things and, you know, there's, it's a business. I mean, there's, there right. are companies that are there to actually promote people to take part in trials. It's like, there, it's a business to provide people for trials. So mm -hmm. anyway, that was something I started looking at and 
got very wrapped up in. And same thing with like how the FDA approves certain medications and how a lot of pharmaceutical companies sort of work around those things. There are lots of loopholes. And mm. anyway, and then there are whistleblowers, and I started reading those accounts, and it's very interesting. Well, and then the connection with the military I found really fascinating because it is interwoven uh, with the drug companies in t- trials on veterans, and that's part of what's in the book is about the, the trials on these poor veterans that come back you know, where there's little or no hope really for them recovering and they kind of, their families, because they want hope, they sign them up for the trials. So I think you expose that really deftly with um, having Paul be the guy that's the one going into the clinical trial. So that's pretty interesting. Yeah, Yeah, following his arc through that was probably one of the hardest things about the book for me. And Uh, I, I didn't have like a predetermined idea of how that would end up. I mean, for all I knew, by the end of the book, Paul and Bevelin might completely be incompatible. I mean, I didn't really know what was going to happen. Because, uh-huh. um, you know, Paul has a very strong hunger for validation. Mm-hmm. And he's, you know, had some humiliating experiences in the past. And, you know, getting this validation from this deal he makes with this company has meant so much to him. And so he's really, he has a big ethical He's faced with a big ethical dilemma by mm. a certain point in the book. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, and how do you navigate that, especially with someone who's so against <laughs> conspicuous yeah. consumption? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Which is yeah. what he's kind of yeah. uh, actually revealing is that kind of attitude or yeah. Yeah, yeah, tied in with all the drug testing and everything. Right. Yeah, that's very interesting. Well, I love this book. It was wonderful how you wove... Um, all these different facets that you're that inspire you in your writing. Um, how long did it take you to write the book? Just out of curiosity, because there's so much research you did on it. It's true. Yeah, I started in 2007, oh. and um, it was accepted by Penguin in 2014. So wow, yeah. long time. Yeah, so you were working on it a long time. For yeah, yeah. I mean, there were intervals when I were, was doing other things like this. Um, you know, we lived in Japan for a while, and I was working on this anthology of Japanese literature. But, um, so it wasn't like seven years every day, but pretty uh, close to that, actually. Uh, <laughs> yeah, on either side of the Japan trip. Um, yeah. And how long were you in Japan? That's oh, just for, just for six months. Uh, six months, uh, yeah. uh-huh. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, that's a, that's a, I know that novels take um, so much time and then you have to put them aside and then you pick them up again i mean i've been working on one for 15 20 years now oh, okay. and it's so still not done so yeah. i totally understand yeah and um and it's just about at the point where i can get it out to publishers and agents and things so it's yeah it's getting there but um it's been a long evolution and it's you kind of have to live with them i mean they live in you but they also live around you yeah, <laughs> because you've got the manuscripts laying everywhere yeah. so i really i really understand um, how challenging that is. I wrote a lot of material I didn't use, too. I mean, I, I, bet. I, I bet you did. Hundreds and hundreds of pages of stuff. Cause really? I would, since wow. I didn't have an outline, I was just sort of trying things out. And to really try it out, you have to, like, polish it. So it can't just be, like, you know, maybe it's not working because it's not polished, you know. So yeah. that took a lot of time. Yeah, yeah. yeah. 
And then if yeah. you change the point of view in a particular area, yeah. then you have to change the whole, you know, you change the whole novel. Like I went from first person to right. third person in my novel and I had to change the whole thing. Yeah. And then there are segments I wanted it to be more personal. So, yeah, I totally, it's yeah. very challenging. It is. So you're also involved in two literary magazines. Um, and I'd like to just talk a little bit about that because... Oh, yeah, uh, I'd love to talk about that. Yeah. yeah, so you've got the Chicago Quarterly Review and then Catamaran Literary Reader. And can you just... Um, how did you get involved with the Chicago Quarterly Review? Because you live here. Right. <laughs> well, I met the founder at a writing conference many years ago, maybe almost 20 years ago. And um, he's, at some point we stayed friends. His name is Said Heder, and he lives in Chicago. And he had this magazine, and um, I think in about 2003, he asked me if I wanted to join the staff, and I thought I would want to do that I, mm -hmm. so I did and um, then gradually I you know now we co-edit it together mm -hmm. and uh, I go back to Chicago a couple usually at least twice a year mm -hmm. um, for events and you know just to meet with the others and stuff and I really enjoy it it's mm -hmm. I really enjoy working with Saeed and we have like some other really great editors in Chicago John Blades he used to be the literary editor of the Tribune and mm -hmm. um so you know some others so great writers themselves they're all writers uh -huh. um Carrie Houston, Umberto Tosi, Jim Stacy. Uh -huh. so and, and what is the Chicago Quarterly Review does it does it revolve around a particular kind of writing or a particular aspect of writing or is, it's all different kind of literature? Yeah I'd say that um we've published all kinds of stuff but um we're open to pretty experimental writing. Mm -hmm. um, we have poetry, essays, you know, memoir, fiction, um, mm -hmm. and the quality of work we get through our submittable site is just every year gets better and better. It's really? just incredible. That's yeah, and we get so much more than we can use. I mean, we're getting you know tons of submissions now because uh -huh. I guess because it's been around for over twenty years, but. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. There are a lot of literary magazines that come and go, yeah. but the ones that stay yeah. tend to get a lot more submissions. Yeah, that yeah. Was, and Catamaran has been like just a joy. You know, it started here in Santa Cruz in late 2012, mm -hmm. and um, Catherine Segerson is the founder and sort of the visionary behind it all. And um, it's the most beautiful literary magazine I've ever seen. Like her concept of pairing fine art with, you know, essays. And, you know, fiction, poetry mm -hmm. is just brilliant. It looks, you know, the production quality is beautiful. And mm -hmm. I, I really love working on that because I'm here. And so I can take part in the readings mm -hmm. and the events. And, mm -hmm. you know, we have the conference every summer. Right. We're planning it again for this summer. Oh, great. So that's great. Yeah. 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 So when you're editing, what is it that really irritates you when you get a poem that, or a story or something across your desk? What do you what do you immediately reject? Oh my God. Um, what do I immediately reject? Um, I, there's not too much I... I mean, if I just start reading it and it's... Okay, I mean, the only thing I can think of to answer that absolutely would just be like a bunch of typos or misspellings in the first paragraph. That would just totally. freak me out. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but um, other than that, I mean, I usually... I, I usually, when I'm reading through the submissions, I 
I read a lot of a story, if not all of the story, before I decide. I mean, uh-huh. usually I read the whole story. Um, I think there are stories, though, there are certain ways of starting stories that are less promising than others. Um, oh, uh-huh. I think there's a ton of stories that start with people just sort of waking up in the morning and turning on the kettle, and you get tired of that. Mm-hmm. Um, or stories about someone's grandmother, like it just in a kind of matter-of-fact voice. I don't know, a lot of people seem to write those, so after a while you kind of get tired of them. Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah, otherwise, I mean, I, I'm i continually fascinated by all the endless variety of stuff we get. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I, reading submissions, reading manuscripts has been part of my life as a writer since I was just out of college because I started working at the Atlantic Monthly then as the assistant to the fiction editor Mm -hmm. and that's you know I was taking home briefcases full of like 40 stories a week and reading them and I learned more from that than anything Mm -hmm. so Mm -hmm. it's still important to me yeah do you tend to to, uh, favor surrealism or abstraction in writing if you have any I mean surrealism yeah surrealism or abstraction or realism in writing I like everything I mean I just it, it if a story we have we have a, a crazy story in our new issue about um, a man who lets his girlfriend borrow his penis whenever he she wants to and <laughs> it's it he really this is by Panio Giannopoulos who's a really great writer and it it's just it really works he mm-hmm. took it to its he took the concept as far as he could go. <laughs> um, you know, so we're, in, we're interested in stuff like that. That's kind of crazy, but we've mm-hmm. also had very realistic writing and mm-hmm. storylines and mm-hmm. stuff. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. yeah. Memoirs by people that are very heartfelt and realistic. So yeah. Yeah. It's just the writing and how well it does what it sets out to do. Yeah. Oh, great. Well, okay. I have to ask you the, question you always get asked who are your favorite authors (laughs) who do you like to read oh gosh well there's so many um but I always I have the ones I always say when asked this question because they're for example writers like Haruki Murakami really love and I'm always on alert if he has something new um Mm -hmm. same with Kazuo Ishiguro the Japanese English writer um I've all I, I just Anything he does, I want to know mm-hmm. about. Um, I've become a real fan of Tessa Hadley's writing. Tessa Hadley, okay. Yeah, she's an English writer who, her stories are beautiful, mm-hmm. but her novels are also quite wonderful. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, there's so many old books I have not read from in the past that mm-hmm. I'm, like, trying to catch up on. I mean, mm-hmm. I love the New York Review book classic series, mm-hmm. and I just... I'm kind of addicted to ordering new ones. And mm-hmm. uh, recently read Turtle Diary by Russell Hoban. It was a mm. gorgeous little book. And mm. Stoner, which is getting a lot of attention now by John Williams. That's a wonderful book in that series. And mm. So, yeah, I just, yeah. Yeah, yeah inspire you. Too many things to, I went through this Ira Murdoch, Iris Murdoch craze a couple of years ago. I uh-huh. read her novel, The Sea, The Sea, and just, like, was knocked out, um, uh, and then started, she has many books, so I had a lot to go through there. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Well, your anthology, um, 
that you wrote about Japanese, uh, my post-war life about Japanese literature yes. and anthology. Um, uh, so you spent time in Japan, and then did you collect um, authors while you were there exactly. and meet uh, people that were writing? And exactly, that's how you got it together. It was like one of the best things about it was I was on this sort of scavenger hunt um, where I'd get a name from somebody. I had some referrals when I got there. And I'd go to them, I'd meet them, I somehow convince them to give, you know, give us something for this book we were putting together, and then they'd give me another name, and I, so I was going on this trail all around Japan. Oh, awesome. And um, I loved doing that, and, you know, met, yeah, I got some wonderful work, poetry, fiction, went to Okinawa even, and met some writers there. Oh. Um, that's why it's called new writings from Japan and Okinawa. And uh -huh. So anyway. Oh, fascinating. Yeah. And now do you speak Japanese or did you have to do that all through translation or did they speak? Many of these writers spoke English, a few we needed translators for. and I was taking Japanese lessons all during that time, but um, no, I don't speak <laughs> I wish. But yeah, yeah. Actually, yeah. my son has become fluent because he's been living in Japan for four years now. Oh, wow. So if I have any questions about anything, I can always ask him. Uh -huh. But, yeah. Oh, that's fantastic. Yeah. yeah. Well, it's amazing how international travel can broaden your kids, you know, like yeah. you, you have an interest in something and then yeah. your kids are suddenly, that's where they're supposed to be. Yeah. <laughs> so it's kind of yeah. great. Yeah. Well, I've so enjoyed having you, and thank you so much for uh, uh, having us hear a little bit about your new novel, and I wish you the best of luck with it. It's oh. just a fascinating read. Thank you, Robin. And I'm really enjoying uh, getting through it. It's, ju it's just a joy to read. I t save it for dessert. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you. Your questions were really um, fun to talk about, too, so oh, thank you. You bet. So uh, I've been with Elizabeth McKenzie, who is the author of The Portable Veblen, and that was published by Penguin and Fourth Estate in England. Uh, her work has appeared in The New Yorker, The Atlantic Monthly, Best American Non-Required Reading, and the Pushcart Prize Anthology. She's been recorded on NPR for Selected Shorts, and she has other collections, Stop That Girl, which shortlisted for the Story Prize, and her novel McGregor Tells the World was a Chicago Tribune, San Francisco Chronicle and Library Journal Best Book of the Year, a nice trifecta to have. And uh, she also wrote My Post-War Life, an anthology of Japanese literature in 2012. So thank you so much for being here, and uh, the show is Evolve. And I'm Robin Whiteturtle-Lesney. Thanks, Robin. Mm -hmm. Thank you for joining us. We hope you enjoyed the show. This is Deb Carousella. Please join us next time for Evolve with Robin White Turtle Lisney, Thursday afternoon at 2 p.m.